Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Alexandra Roxo. Alexandra is a writer, artist, and co-founder of the online community and ritual program, Radical Awakenings. Her artistic works that explore healing the modern female narrative have been viewed by millions, and her writing on the intersection of spirituality, sexuality, and healing have been featured in Girl Boss, Teen Vogue, and more. With Sounds True, Alexandra Roxo has written a new book called Fuck Like a Goddess, Heal Yourself, Reclaim Your Voice, Stand in Your Power. Before I picked up the book, Fuck Like a Goddess, and interviewed Alexandra Roxo, I decided to put aside any judgments I might have about the title, any preconceptions, and open myself fully to this next generation spiritual teacher and hear, hear from her experiences with plant medicine, experimenting with dancing with snakes, and all of her life experiences here what I might be able to learn from them. And I'm so glad I did. This is a very rich and inspiring conversation with someone who was born just a few miles from where I grew up. But when she was born in 1984, that was right when I was starting Sounds True. Here's my conversation with Alexandra Roxo. Alexandra, you've had such an interesting life, at least to me, with your early career as a filmmaker. And in reading about it, quite honestly, it sounded very glamorous. And I was curious what happened in your life such that you decided to leave that what appeared to be very successful trajectory that you were on to start working with people in an in-depth way in their personal healing and becoming a writer and a spiritual teacher? Mm. Well, since I was like 18, 19, I started kind of having my own wake up experience. I I read Be Here Now and I really felt like that transmission of like my whole body shuddering with truth. And I read Autobiography of a Yogi and that's when I started practicing meditation in the you know, a very Vedic, yogic, sattvic kind of like, I'm going to be really clean and pure and like, you know, I'm going to be good yogi. And um, 
you know, one of my acting teachers in college called me out on that. And she said, you're using your spirituality as a mask. And I was shattered and embarrassed in front of all of these people, you know, because I had my little, my yoga whites on and all of that. But at the time it was like, I already knew that my creative path, my spiritual path were like intertwined and that somehow my femininity and my sort of sexuality was a part of it. So it wasn't so much for me that I like, I have to choose a set career. It was more of like, where is the next piece of my awakening going to be held? And it's a little bit of an unconventional way of living. <laughs> um, but it's led me more, I would say, like the artist path where it's not so much about the medium, but it's about the messaging and how to, let's say, put out certain things into the world that I feel very drawn or called to express. And so when I was younger, my first was a play and it was called This Little Light of Mine. And it was about a Christian girl and a Muslim girl in a rehabilitation home and how they were both kind of, you know, pushed down for being too much. Their their light was like snuffed out. And anyway, the trajectory just kept following. You know, I was wanting to tell stories about women's bodies and women's voices and women's connection to God, God is divine. And so that, that took me to film and photo and experimental films and um, web show, documentary. And I just kept listening to, to spirit, if you will, which I call whatever. I don't, you know, kind of adhere to one word, God, goddess, divine, spirit, love, truth, whatever. But I just kept following that little spark inside of myself. And there was a place where the spark told me that my, my path was not to stick around in Hollywood and linger too long. You know, I could have gotten cozied up there and like, you know, kind of drank the, the delicious nectar of the Leela, if you will, using that word of like, oh my God, Hollywood and parties and celebrities. And like, I think I could have gotten like stuck in that chapter for a while, but instead I listened and the, the voice within said, no, you're going to help facilitate healing and bring other people into the depth of your spiritual practice. And you're going to share about your own healing. And I was like, Oh no, I don't want to do that, <laughs> but I have agents at CAA, but I'm going to be someone special. And, um, but instead I listened, you know, I, I really listened and I let parts of my ego kind of get like sloughed off as I, um, metamorphosized into someone who was like, oh, I'm going to be in Hollywood into like, I want to stand for truth and awakening. Now, you mentioned that some of the early books that influenced you, also books that were very influential in my life, Autobiography of a Yogi and other books about Indian spirituality, didn't necessarily incorporate the path of the artist and certainly not the path of, let's go ahead and invoke the title of your new book, Fucking Like a Goddess. There wasn't a whole lot of embracing of our sexuality in the way that traditional Indian yogic spirituality is often communicated. What was that process like for you of bringing your sexuality into your spiritual path? Mm -hmm. 
Man, it's always been a tough one because I grew up in Georgia and they were like, you're a sinner. I actually remember in like the, the play at the musical at church, they were like, we're going to make you a Sin City dancer. And they gave me a red boa. And um, sort of, I felt always indoctrinated in that sort of uh, virgin whore dichotomy that existed in the Bible. And so a lot of my early art was about that exploration. And um, But after I sort of got, read Ramdas and, and Yogananda and I, I I was very confused. Okay, how can I be a robust also like my sexuality, I've always identified as queer or bisexual. Like, so how can I be this robust woman? You know, um how do I fit into this into these spiritual traditions that I do feel like are truth, like I feel truth when I read them, but I still don't feel like all of me is welcome here. And and that's when I stumbled upon Starhawk's work and sort of the more goddess traditions and the paganism that did honor um, sexuality in a certain way, sensuality, the earth, um, a communication and, and a reverence for the earth that I didn't feel like in yoga necessarily. Um, and that was really healing for me. I thought, oh my God, finally, like, I'm okay, I'm, it's okay to be a woman and to, to bleed and to, you know, love to dance and to sing, and I don't have to hide away parts of myself. So that connection to, like, the lunar rituals and the seasons of the earth and astrology and all of the more earth-based traditions felt like an important piece of my own journey. And that's, and then later I was led into the more tantric traditions, but I don't think that that veil, that like mysterious portal opened to me until I was ready. And um, a great teacher who I, I know, you know, Sally Kempton, she said once, like, you have to have been meditate. Med I'm not quoting verbatim, but like you have to have been meditating for at least 10 to 15 years before you can begin to understand like the tantric paths. Like you have to have like a very firm ground. And so I didn't come across any of those paths really deeply until, I don't know, probably in the past five years that I was able to open and explore Kashmiri Shaivist Tantra um, and uh, Vajrayana Buddhism. Um, which is a different level of incorporation of the senses. But first it was like in my twenties, it was like, you know, finding paganism, finding earth-based traditions and that, and shamanism as well. And that was really important for me. In a very personal way, Alexandra, what does it mean for you, for your sexuality to be intrinsic and part of your spiritual journey as a person, not so much out there in the traditions, but for you, for you, for you personally? Well, the first thing that feels the most resonant is that it means that I am acceptable, lovable, whole, worthy as a being who has sexual desires. It's kind of like the baseline and that that is not separate from my inherent divine nature. And so I was taught from a young age that it was separate, you know, that my connection to divinity and my connection to the body were severed. Like they were actually not able to dance in a, in a glorious union together. So for me, when I was like, holy crap, I'm allowed to be both, I'm allowed to be sensual and mystical, sacred and profane, spiritual and sexual, I felt just an immense self-acceptance. 
And it, it rang like truth because I thought, well, I was created like this with this body. I don't think that was a mistake. But somehow, like the world's kind of and the traditions that I was sitting in, I still felt over and over like my sensuality or my senses were something that I needed to transcend and overcome and tame. Um, so that's probably been a biggest part of my life struggle, to be completely honest, or, you know, like this internal kind of question since I was very young. One of the things that got my attention towards the end of Fuck Like a Goddess, you were talking about practices we can do to open up to more love, to receiving more love. And one of the practices you suggest is just like we commit to a meditation practice, we can commit to a solo sex practice and bring discipline and focus. And I was like, huh, I wonder, does this metaphor really work? Is it really (laughs) similar? Is it a meditative discipline to commit to a solo sex practice? So tell me what you think about that. It is if we bring consciousness and breath and awareness to it. And so, and this is not an original concept that, you know, it's, I'm not the first to to discuss this. And um, I really do honor the people that have come before me. You know, I think many people are taught like masturbation per se is like, you know, you kind of like get really excited and build towards a climax quickly and then it's done or something like that. And it's very different than a practice where you're deepening your breath and maybe making sound and maybe experiencing some grief or maybe experiencing some joy and you're allowing your awareness to stay actually present, even if the pleasure gets really big, right? You don't sort of lose your awareness. That is a meditative practice. Again, I think that that's something people have been practicing probably for thousands of years. In, in, um, but I found more than just that, than an awareness practice, I found it to be really healing to get to know my body on my own and to feel like I'm making love with God. And I used to hate the word God because I, I went through the like, you know, phase of uh, being a recovering Christian. But now I kind of like the word God, I've reclaimed it. <laughs> so it's like making love with divinity, with with everything, with all that is. And I think if you have a, a practice where you're not fantasizing about ABC, but instead you're staying present, grounded in your body and connected to your breath, it can be so transcendental. It can be so uh ecstatic, blissful. And it's been really healing um, for me and a lot of the the women that I've coached and mentored to use like a crystal wand is what I would recommend um, if you're a female bodied person and um, to just take some time and go slow and allow emotions to come up as you explore your being, taking out the pressure of having a partner there and having it be about a connective intimacy moment with another, but instead creating the intimacy with self and the intimacy with the divine. And I've had visions of all the many different deities and um, other presences as I've been in these type of deep kind of ecstatic experiences with my body and spirit coming together. And uh, yeah, so I recommend it. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that on your own path, you felt this guidance from inside to share your own healing 
path with people as a way to help others, guide others through a healing process. And you talk about healing as an alchemical process. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting chapter in the book that is called How to Heal Your Shit. (laughs) Whatever pile of shit you received, we're going to turn it into gold. (laughs) So with this idea of alchemy, help me understand how you see the healing process of turning our shit into gold. Hmm. Well, again, something that has been sort of written about and spoken about for thousands of years. Um, And the way that I teach it and work with it is like emotional alchemy and internal alchemy. So like using, I use emotions as the fuel. So it's like you need it in order for transformation to occur. You need, um, you need a fuel, you need an, you need um, a catalyst, right? So usually the catalyst is, can be our pain, shame, guilt, um, trauma. And so if you just sit with that stuff in your system, it, 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 makes a home there, right? So it becomes a pattern, becomes a habit, or it sort of patterns itself into your nervous system in a certain way. If and when you say, oh, actually, I see that there's potential. It's like if I gathered this up as fuel for my fire, what transformation might occur that would bring about something new? And I mean, great art is made in that way. World change is made in that way. We're actually at a time in history where if we actually allow for some of this really dense material to become a catalyst for transformation, then we could have a global shift in the way that we exist as humans. But that process most people are terrified of because it means that they essentially have to sit with the, you know, their own demons and society's demons. And I say that tongue in cheek, I don't mean that like specifically like a demonic force, but they have to sit with the dark parts, the painful parts, the uncomfortable parts. And we've been conditioned as humans to not be in discomfort for too long. Our lives are centered around comfort and keeping things, you know, pretty chill. But change doesn't happen in that place, you know. So our senses actually become desensitized when we're too comfortable and when there's not any movement. So I actually find there to be just insane magic when we have the courage to take that the most stickiest material that lives in our system, the most painful bits, and like put them in the soup of our own internal alchemy and say, yeah, let's do this and just do the processes, whether it's breath work, meditation, writing, movement, just sitting in it. There there has to be some sort of a process that you engage with, but then allowing it to move into something else. And there's great relief there. Um, so I, I think, ne- and this is also a very tantric, Vajrayana, Buddhist, like there are so many different traditions that teach us in different ways. And I found a way to teach it specifically. I've worked with a lot of women, female bodies, similar patterning, similar traumas that I found a way that works. And I love facilitating that process for people where I see people that are kind of stuck in their pain and their shame and their guilt and their fear. And then the, I say, great, yummy fabulous. Oh, let's take all that and let's like scoop it up and let's use it for fuel for your transformation. So, yeah. I want to hear more about the actual specific process that you take people through. And maybe we could take an example. Uh, I think an example that might have already 
come up for people in hearing our conversation so far, which is a feeling of some type of shame. Maybe it's shame about their sexual history or about their body or about some part of their sexual beingness. And what's the process that you go through that creates this alchemical transformation? Yeah. So, you know, it's similar to, um, well, I'll, I have different ways that I work with people depending on if we're in a group or one-on-one. But the basis of the process is to identify the thing first and foremost. And then I always like want to high five somebody. Oh my God, you have, ex- you have identified and brought awareness to the fact that you're ashamed of your sexual desires, right? That in itself is the hugest, biggest, most important step. Most people are afraid to bring awareness to that, right? So to just sit in presence and awareness and go, oh, I'm ashamed of my sexual desire of ABC or whatever. So that's great. So that first step is so important. Then I guide people into actually feeling the depth of that thing and feeling it more deeply. Now, this might not clear in one session. This might be an ongoing process. Some of these places in my own being, like I work through them and then they come back and they have a little reprise and then we do more work. So that's just a part of of the nature of it. But then, so that the second piece is like not being afraid to feel it. And to actually, and I use breath work, sound, and movement for this bit, but you could use plant medicine, you could use, um, you know, qigong, you could use something else and different modality to get into the depths of feeling it embodied in your nervous system, activated. And again, I wouldn't say to do this with someone if they are in a really heavy PTSD state and they haven't ever done this, I would say, you know, work with a guide if you're opening some deep caverns, and I say this in my book. But if you're dealing with something that you feel, and I say in my book, you know, you have to take responsibility for this process, and you have to have a certain level of self-awareness that you know what you can handle, right? So when you're sitting with yourself and you dive into, say, that pocket of shame, say you're using the vehicle of one of my practice where you do breath, sound, and movement, And it kind of looks like you're going into a trance. And this is how a lot of like people used to pray and go into trance. And this was something that many different traditions, specifically around women, like would go into trance and moan and breathe and pray. And that's what I lead people in. It looks like people are having an exorcism (laughs) or some sort of an orgy. I'm not sure, but there's no touching. So but whatever modality or whatever tool you use to get to the depth of the feeling, that's the next piece. You get to the depth of the feeling. And now at that point, you know, it, this is why it helps to have a guide. You don't want to get stuck there in a loop. And you can kind of just be like, oh, I'm just stuck in my shame. There has to be a point where your own personal will and your own internal compass and state of awareness helps you to climb out and through the other side. And that place is where there will be a ding of clarity. Like there's always, I've never sat with a client or sat in a group retreat and not had a woman, because I I work mostly with women, not had a woman find some sort of a little ping of clarity after diving to the bottom of a a certain feeling or a certain experience or a certain texture of um, density in their being. So 
And then from that, you come out the other side and it, it really is like that sort of old, you know, axiom, the only way out is through, you know, it's like you go through, like that's the process is like you don't avoid the fear, you don't avoid the shame, you don't avoid the guilt, you actually dive deeper into it. And um, I, that's just the way that I found that things that I feel most powerful and clear is by not trying to sort of avoid them by going deeper into them. And so once people then go through that process, come out the other side, then there's a moment of reintegration, there's a moment of clarity, there's, this can be done with writing, with journaling, with processing, with words, with me. Um, and then it's usually sort of an ongoing kind of an integration of like, wow, like I feel so much more clear and I feel so much more open. Um, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And people do this in different traditions in different ways. And this, I found it's very simple to teach people how to do this with breath, sound and movement. Now in Fuck Like a Goddess, I was reading that some of the origins of how you've developed this practice that you are now working with other people, taking them through, had to do with your own ayahuasca experiences. And you credit ayahuasca with being one of your main teachers. And so my question is what you learned from ayahuasca that informs this process now that you take people through. So I talk about in my book that I did and have done plant medicine work with ayahuasca, peyote, and, and psilocybin being three, three plant medicines that have been great uh, for my own healing journey. And I also talk about in my book that you don't have to do plant medicine work in order to have really deep internal transformation and healing. I see myself sometimes as a curious explorer who likes to walk to the edge and sort of bring back to the people certain elements and translate them. Um, and, you know, in astrology, I have a lot of Aquarian energy and it's the water bearer, you bring water to the people. Um, so in my book, I talk about how in the process of sitting with ayahuasca that I I had to do that thing, which I just described, but very, very intensely and viscerally, which is be taken into the depths of my pains and the depths of my shadows and have the courage to sit there and come out the other side. And um, I, I started to think, well, how can I translate that experience to people who maybe don't need to go do that or who can't do that? Um, but could still experience something similar where you're taken into a journey into your body and your psyche um, and you're able to learn to move through really difficult textures of feelings and um, ex experiential um, moments in the body. And I really think ayahuasca like gave me the transmission because Honestly, like I didn't know why I started doing what I was doing with women. It just started coming through, like the way I was facilitating groups and facilitating uh, client sessions. And it wasn't like I sat down and thought, okay, this is how I'm gonna, how I'm gonna help people. But it just started channeling through me. And when I really reflected upon it, I'm like, okay, there are many teachers that have been really important on my path. And the plant medicine experience, when I'm breaking down this transformational moment, <clears throat> excuse me. So there are many different teachers, but when I'm talking about this internal alchemy and this like 
moving through the portal of intense emotion or like transcending our trauma or a pain, ayahuasca really taught me a lot and took me to like the darkest pits of hell <laughs> in a sense where I really thought I was dying and I had to face that. Um, and with that, I came a lot of courage out the other side. Um, and then I translated it as I did. So yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for the indigenous peoples, and I talk about that in the book, that have so graciously extended an invitation to me in my life. Would you be willing to share an actual ayahuasca story and the healing that it delivered? Oh my goodness, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll maybe share two, because one, one is just so intense that we got to follow it up with something a little bit more positive. but. I had one ayahuasca experience where I asked the medicine, I said, hey, anything that is holding me back from really, really receiving love, I'm willing to face tonight. And um, when the uh, facilitator, who is a wonderful woman, gave me the cup to drink, I noticed that it was a big double gulp. And I thought, uh-oh, I never had a double gulp before. I never had such a big gulp cup. And I was like, okay, just trust. And um, I knew, oh my God, I'm about to go way in. And um, man, it took me the courage to ask for help and to ask to be taken out of the room. And that night, whatever moved through me was the most terrifying experience I've ever been in. And um, I just kept saying, take from me. This is kind of a Ram Dass thing, actually. Take from me all that, no, that's Bhagavan Dass. Take from me all that's not free. I just kept saying, take from me all that's not free. And it was, and then I would lay on the floor and I would look at this angel who was sitting with me, a, a human who was helping me. And I would say, I know I signed, like, I wanna, I wanna move through as much karma as possible this life. I'd like to, I'd like to get closer to enlightenment. And I know I signed up for this moment and I don't regret it, but this is the most difficult thing I've ever been through in my life. And I'm asking for mercy. And I asked for mercy. I asked for the angels. I asked for Jesus. I really called on everyone and it was dark. And it, it reminded me of that moment, you know, we hear where Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment of like the deepest darkness where it's like, you feel like you're completely alone and, um, I knew intellectually that I wasn't alone. It was, I couldn't find love. And it was so tragic. It was like, I could not feel the light of love. And um, at a certain point in the night, um, after, you know, just begging for mercy and feeling the most extreme physical, psychological discomfort. And a certain night I felt like the light starting to return. And um, it was, the wildest experience, you know, that I've ever had being sort of that close and that far at the same time. And, um, one of my dear sisters was in the other room and she said, Oh, I kept hearing you and wanting to come help you and hold you, but I knew you had to just go through whatever you had to go through. Um, and the weird thing about it is that you don't get like a, you don't get like a printout afterwards where it's like, okay, this is why you had to experience that. And, and the intellectual, like the mind of mine wants to know, like, well, what was that? Was I purging out my parents' karma, society? Was I tapped into the collective field? And I might never know, you know? Um, 
so that one was a big toughie. That was a toughie. Um, but I've had some other ones where I felt victorious at the end and I was like able to sort of um, feel, feel a, a relief, like I had moved through and was just dancing and singing at the end and feeling an opening of joy. So yeah, it's a powerful, potent teacher, not for everyone, I don't think, but for me, um, since I do, I am a curious human who likes to sort of go, go poke around the edges. It's been very important. Now, I read that you had some snake dancing experiences as part of your ayahuasca journey learning. And I thought, what, what was that? <laughs> well, there's actually two separate things. So, um, I, as I love to explore, you know, different traditions and different sort of mystical places on this earth. I just feel like, how could I not? Because I'm here um, in this incarnation. I have this, the freedom to just like play, which is amazing. Um, so I, I, I found this sort of symbology around snake and woman and the Bible and also in many different traditions. I mean, most cultures have such a, a huge association with the snake energy. And um, in my early 20s, I really connected with that. And I would do meditations where I would sort of, you know, connect with snake energy. And um, I held my first snake. And then about, um, let's see, maybe five years ago or something, I was connected with a snake priestess in LA here who had three temple snakes. And, um, you know, I, I went into a ceremony where there, this wasn't, there was no plant medicine. It was just the medicine of holding this beautiful snake and then very gently dancing with the snake. Um, and I was so impacted by this, that I just was sobbing. And it was like, um, I thought, this is crazy. How can just a snake like on my body make me feel like my heart is bursting open? It really was this kind of, you know, wild, wild experience. Once I did some research, I saw that like women across time have like been taught this art of like holding snakes or dancing with snakes and that they do hold this shamanic power in a way. And these were particularly raised in that way. So they were cared for lovingly. They weren't just like, you know, I don't advise, or I don't think anyone advises you just go pick up a snake and, you know, channel its power. <laughs> Though some cultures do that, but, um, but yeah, that, that was such a beautiful part of me connecting with my um, sort of sensual nature. And um, that teacher, I met her, um, because she worked with David Data and her name is London Angel Winters. And so it was like a very important part of my path to connect with her and the snake and then to really study David Data's work through her, um, which was another sort of portal of my journey. And it's just been, you know, it's just in talking about it all, I mean, I just, I'm so grateful to actually have these things present themselves to me because that's how it usually works. It's like, I'm not sniffing around for, you know, what's the next thing, but mm -hmm. it comes to me, like all mm -hmm. of like that experience came to me. And through, um, through that, I got to then ex meet this whole other world of people that were doing this 
you know, intimacy work in a way that I had to heal some deep, deep shadows around men in that work. And it was like a piece of my healing process that was so essential and so uncomfortable. <laughs> so it's clear, Alexandra, that you are a wild and adventurous spiritual explorer. I noticed though what impacts me the most, what uh, inspires me the most is when you said, on your journey, uh, take everything from me that's not free. Take anything away from me that's not free. And in your book, uh, Fuck Like a Goddess, in terms of healing and healing from inherited wounds in your family, you write, you know, the train stops with me. The train of this trauma from one generation to another stops with me. That really inspired me as well. Uh, and I'm saying these things because there's one thing you can kind of be like the outer skirts of adventure, adventure for adventure's sake. But there's something else going on with you mm -hmm. that is different than that. And I want to underscore that. And then yeah. also specifically, help me understand this idea of this train of trauma, one generation to another stops with me yeah. and what that's meant for you personally in your own healing. Yeah. Well, I, I, I first just want to presence that all of my spiritual pursuits have really been to know myself, to know love, to know God, and to heal from pain. And so they haven't just been for the fun of it, though that would be a different life, which sounds kind of cute. <laughs> but for me, it's been because I felt a gaping hole in my chest or because I felt so much pain in my body or because I knew that there was love that I'd never felt and there still is, but like I didn't grow up as maybe feeling loved. And so by ayahuasca or by sacred partnership work or whatever there, maybe I would uncover like the, the love of God, you know, something, the love of, of oneness or something. So it came with that desire to know infinity, which I think is still kind of what drives me. Um, and the train stops here is like, and I'm definitely not the first person to say that, but I, I think we all need to say that. So um, I think that we all inherit so much. We've inherited culturally, systemically, um, and personally, so many beliefs, ideas, traumas. You know, you can look at epigenetics. You can look at all of it. Um, and specifically looking through your parents, um, through the culture around you. I, I very quickly understood that I didn't want to replicate some of the um, behaviors that I saw either the people around me of my social class or my skin color or my parents doing. And I knew that meant I had to make radical different uh, decisions than they were making. And that was really uncomfortable to go, no, I'm not going to work a f nine to five. No, I'm going to like live in this, you know, communal house. Nope. I'm going to like do this. And I, I feel like in my family, like it made me kind of feel like a freak in a way, you know, and kind of because, but I was very aware. I don't want to make the choices that I have seen other people make um, towards a life that is centered around money, goals, and, you know, productivity. Like that's not my core values as a human. So um, choosing a life that's, that's driven by love and connection and spirit is not the status quo in our world. It's just not. And um, I've 
I've held that. I've really held that, you know, and now I see I can kind of have both, I think. So that's good. <laughs> um, that I don't have to go live on a mountaintop and like, you know, say like, forget money, but that there is a, a beautiful sort of, um, you know, coexisting of um, being a lay person who has a spiritual path and has a deep practice and also can have a business and function well in the world. But, you know, both of my parents were survivors of early childhood sexual abuse. And so I grew up experiencing their pain very close to me and their depression, anxiety, um, their relationship with food, alcohol, uh, sex, love, um, was very much a reaction and, and a part of that post-traumatic experience. And there were other things as well, but I do feel like I was able to to see wow I could I could continue on with that. And I saw how I was starting to have the same relationship with food, alcohol, sex, love. And I thought, no way. And it was like I had to like kind of uh, purify is not my favorite word, but I had to sort of recondition, I will say, my relationship to those things and feel how um, that they were all an easy way to escape the pain and the escape the, the sitting in the deep, dark pain. Um, and so I did. And I kind of feel like I sat in those years of ceremony, like doing, you know, for my parents and they, they were really about like a lot of the pain that I had inherited and that had been sort of around me my whole life. And then how I formed as a human in relation to their pain, which was feeling unsafe and never really loved and alone a lot. Um, so I was like, I can, I can continue with these patterns in my nervous system of feeling unsafe, unloved and unmet <laughs> or, and, and you, and potentially like, you know, fixating on food, alcohol, sex and love, or I can see this as my fuel for my, you know, tantric fires and become something and change these patterns. And, and I have, you know, I had problems with all of those things and I, I like in a, in a video game, I was like, doom, 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 doom. Like, I'm going to work through each of these things and I can do it. And um, not that there's a, an end point where you're like, cool, I'm done. But I feel like that chapter of my um, sort of soul or human evolutionary process is complete. And, um, and I have, I see so many clients and so many people that are still really deep in, you know, the, the difficult relationships to their feelings or to food or to alcohol or to sex or to love and using any or money and using any of those as an escape or fixation or obsession. Um, and so I really appreciate having helping people orient back to truth from those from those places. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to pick up on one thread. You mentioned that through the snake dancing brought you into the David Data world and then, then brought you into some healing with men. What needed to heal with you and men? And how did you do that? Oh my goodness. Well, my dad and I have had had a very difficult relationship, which I do mention in my book. I don't go into the all of it, but I do mention it and I tried to do it in like a tactful, poiseful way. Um my dad, now we've made peace. I'll tell everybody that, but he was like the, for 30 years, the kind of, we had like a love hate relationship that had a lot of pain in it for me. So when my parents got divorced, um, my mom took me 
away from him. And then he was just kind of shut off his heart to me for the rest of the time. And, you know, um, there was like a lot of unkind things and unkind moments and I won't get into all of that, but let's just say it was a, it was a hefty lot at times for little Alexandra to hold. And, um, and I formed in relation to that. And, so yeah, I, I kind of hated men. My dad called me fat all the time. He was like talking about women's breasts. Like I, I was so mad at him. And I, then I was like, wait a minute. And then men are the ones who are making the political decisions and sex trafficking women and telling me to like shove a tampon in myself. And like, I really was mad. I was mad, you know, very typical young, angry feminist, of course. Um, and then I was also went through like, being a pretty girl who is um, a target for sexual assault. Like I think most women are, I don't, I don't think everybody talks about it, but it was definitely not a huge part of my life, but a part of my journey. So I did have a lot of anger. I had a lot of anger about the patriarchy, about the way women's bodies have been treated for thousands of years, um, about witch trials and the way women were killed for being priestesses and healers and herbalists and, the way I wasn't allowed to, to like have a menstrual cycle, the way I was taught to feel that my body was dirty. Like I was pissed. I was pissed at like the system and the men and my dad was the pinnacle of that. And, um, and so, you know, um, I chose, I think partners that were the opposite of that in order to avoid being around any masculine men. I did not want to be around masculine men. I wanted to be, I was like, I'll be around queer men or artsy men or I'll date women. And um, when I found the David Data work, I had come out of a relationship with a woman and I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, this work around polarity and intimacy. And it was tough at first. I would stand in front of a man in a workshop and I would just be like, I'm not opening my heart to you. I don't know you. And I would, you know, I would, I would go through these feelings and there would be crying and screaming and, you know, it was really intense. And those teachers were so lovely that they held space for me as they probably didn't know the depth of the sort of kind of trauma that I was working through. Um, and eventually I had to step away because I was like, I need to take a break from this because too much has kind of risen to the surface at once and it can be destabilizing. And I think, you know, that's a part of that work. It's like, well, you do have to do the work on yourself in order to show up to a partnership in a way um, so that you're not just spewing that old stale anger at dad onto your partner or whatever. But um, yeah, through that work, I've healed with my, with sort of my relationship to men. I, and I met some great men who I was like, Oh my God, they're actually trustworthy and loving and kind and respectful and, so that's been a major part of my healing journey the last like few years. And yeah, I'm very grateful for that. Now my father and I have a very beautiful relationship. He doesn't shame me or say terrible things anymore. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah. Now, Alexandra, your new book, I've said it several times. It's a fun title to say, Fuck Like a Goddess. The subtitles Heal Yourself. And I think we've talked quite a lot about that. Reclaim Your Voice, which I want to talk about in just a moment. Stand in Your Power. But let's make sure when people hear the goddess part mm -hmm. that they know what you're talking about. 
So whether we're speaking up like a goddess or healing like a goddess or fucking like a goddess, what does that mean to you, the like a goddess part? Yeah. Well, I'd like to also just address the F word real quick. Go Um, for it. So I put these two words together because I really enjoy the sort of play of the sacred and the profane coming together. And the word fuck, I think, is is like a word that holds a lot of power in our in our world. And I like that it's used in so many different expressions. Like, I don't give a fuck or like, fuck it. Or like, I want to fuck or like, fuck you. You know, it actually holds so many different meanings within it. The word goddess is the divine as a feminine entity or a feminine being. And I feel like she hasn't gotten a ton of play. And I feel like whether you're a man, a woman, a non-binary person, there's probably an element of the goddess that needs to rise in you and that would be helpful to rise in you. Now, that being said, I do say in my book, like, you can fuck like a light beam, you can fuck like an angel, you can fuck like a butterfly, you can fuck whatever fragment of divinity speaks to you is great. And what I mean by like fucking like a goddess is to let yourself be made love to by life, to surrender to this life in a way that we stop trying to control everything and we allow for life's magic to present itself to us, which is an aspect of receiving, which is an aspect of a more archetypal feminine energy, which we seem to have lost, you know? Our days are controlled. Everything about our lives is planned, is organized. We aren't operating in in the flow with the seasons or nature. So fucking like a goddess is actually surrendering and it's actually appreciating and taking in all of life, the good, the bad, the ugly, and finding the divinity in all of it. And I do talk about this and I kind of define this in the first chapter. So I am asking the, the reader or the audience or the person potentially buying the book, I am asking them to kind of come up with their own feelings towards the title because they don't know all that when they see it. But, um, but the goddess, I think, is, is, I think until people use it a little bit more regularly as, as, as much as people use God, then it's really a beautiful aspect of like the divine feminine, which I think is going to be important in this next phase of human uh, civil, uh, civilization or evolution um, because there are so many elements of um, feminine archetype or different goddesses exist in different cultures that embody or stand for different parts of the, the human psyche that need to be brought into light, that need to come out of the shadow. So goddess to me is important. And, and even, you know, it's interesting, Yogananda, I remember in one of his talks or books, he said, you know, the divine mother is, is just reawakening barely right now. We are just like a little eyelash in her eye that's lightly fluttering, but she's nowhere close to being awoken from her slumber. And I feel that because, and we can see that with the way people are being killed on this planet, the way that the earth's being treated, you know, people in cages, all kinds of craziness. Like the mother archetype is not, that is not, doesn't put children in cages, doesn't like destroy, uh, you know, whole, uh, peoples you know so 
the goddess does need to rise in each one of us. And it is its mother, its, its sister, its grandmother, its wisdom, its receptivity, its fierceness. Like it is death. It's the feminine death. It's all of those things. It's crone. Like it's all of these aspects. And you can use those words. They're just labels for certain aspects of like the collective psyche. So yeah, that all of that is kind of held in, in the word goddess, in my opinion. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about reclaiming our voice as a goddess, my, reclaiming our voice as a goddess. And in a section of the book, you talk about finding our voice and you write, many of us oscillate between the pattern of I'm too much or I'm not enough. And I thought, I think a lot of people can really relate to that when it comes to coming forward. You know, I know I, many times I've thought I'm too intense. Like I'm just, people aren't going to like me. They don't like me. It's too much, too curious, too under their skin, ask whatever. And then of course the other side, you know, I'm not this or that enough. I should have done a better job. So how do you help people get out of that pattern of oscillating between I'm too much, I'm not enough? Oh my goodness. Well, same thing as I said before, just dive headfirst into it. <laughs> so, you know, I've dealt with the too much pattern my whole life, mostly. I think, well, probably both, but more of the too much because I've always been kind of vivacious and had a lot to say and been passionate and thought, wow, what a joy it is to be alive. And people are like, wow, you're such a freak, you know? And so um, for me, getting through the too much was just actually completely owning it and going, yeah, like I am actually too much because I don't exist in the status quo of normalcy and mainstreamness. And I'm actually super stoked about that. And the artists and the poets and the musicians and the visionaries that I love don't exist in like the mainstream boxes. So that's, that's coming at it from a rationalization and that doesn't quite work usually on a long term for most people. They have to find this in their embodied experience of self. And to me, that happens by actually taking risks. So yeah, intellectualizing, it's great. Let's do it. Let's rationalize. But really the change happens in the nervous system when we actually move through those moments of life. So one thing that has helped me with the too muchness is like to actually express the depth of my emotion in front of someone I love, not spewing it onto them, not putting it on them, but expressing it in front of them and them not run out the room and say, you're a freak, I'm leaving. Now, if I held back and thought, well, this, this feeling is too much, I better just save it for later, stuff it down in my vault of too much feelings inside of myself until I have, get a disease. If I, if I did that, then I wouldn't get the experience in my nervous system of what it feels like to push through the too much and to exist in that moment and to still be loved, accepted, or at least witnessed by someone. So I would say to people, I know that it's scary to take the risks of being too much, but if you can let yourself be witnessed in your too muchness, either by a friend, family member, a coach, healer, whatever it is, and you can breathe in that moment, stay present in your body, then you will reprogram yourself towards what's too much and what's not enough and all of it, because all of that is just conditioning. So it's not even truth. It's conditioning based on the society we live in. So to me, the practice of getting through those is actually in the embodied experience of being in the moment, 
breathing, letting myself have a too much moment in front of someone or, or, you know, as a part of my work, etc. And feeling that there might be a contraction afterwards where my whole body contracts, where I feel like I need to shrink and staying open and breathing anyway and staying open anyway. And, um, Oh, it's so magnificent to uh, facilitate those moments for other people. I just love it. And it's just like they come to life. They wake up. A part of them wakes up. And it's like there's more light in their eyes, more beauty, like their luminosity. And it's it's magnetic, you know, in a way because it's just like it's it's real. It's true. It's authentic. Okay, that's one side of the mm-hmm. oscillation, the yeah. I'm too much. What about for that person who what they hear inside is – you know, I'm not adventurous like Alexandra. I'm, yeah. I'm not brave like like she is. So that that piece, it's like it's like it's like being witness and experience of the opposite of like allowing who you are in the moment and whatever feels like your truth in that moment. Finding a way, whether it's in writing or sharing or um, some way that you allow yourself to feel the depth of that. I'm not enough. And be witnessed in that and breathe through that in that moment and see if you can just come out the other side. Now, it doesn't have to be necessarily like claiming that you're not enough, but breathing through that moment and finding a nugget of truth. I feel like it's a little bit different than too much one. For me, let's say I go into into a party and I'm like, I don't deal with the, the not good enough one very much, I don't think. But sometimes I do with think with romance. Um, it's like finding that little shred of truth in my body that I know it pretty well because I, I spend time with it in my meditation and in my, in my practices. So when I'm feeling, oh, I'm not good enough or something like that, if I can keep my pulse on just that little part of me that knows that I am divine as is and that this is how I'm meant to be, then I can kind of push through that and find my center. And I also will use um, other emotions to kind of fuel those moments. Like, so if I was at a party and I looked around and like everyone looks fancier than me and cooler than me or something, I would find some little spice in my body that was like, that could, could, could vouch for me. Something in myself. I would come back to myself and find something, some reason that I, I love myself, some little something. Um, because I'm in a good relationship with myself in that moment and I've done that work. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers it perfectly. I'm, I'm much more of a too much expert than a not enough expert. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's one other aspect about speaking up and claiming our voice that really got my attention from the book. Uh, you write, you claim your voice first and foremost by claiming your story by owning what has happened to you. And I think you've done a beautiful job of demonstrating that here in our conversation. You're Mm. really illustrating that point. Yeah, I think people are ashamed to claim their story. They're like, oh no, but why would anyone wanna hear that? It's like, it's the most interesting movie. Don't try to come up with another movie. The original movie that God, existence, life gave you, it's probably way more interesting than just some, you know, thing that exists outside of you. Like you are the art, your heart, your feelings, your, that the, the experiences that have woven their way into you. And it's not that you have to identify with the story or create a whole life around the stories you've been given, 
but they they are a building block you know they are like your prima materia like there are like this gorgeous clay that like molds you into you and so if people skip over the step of actually claiming that then I believe it's bypassing to an extent because it's like oh I'm just going to go over here and like become this thing and forget that this all of this is what made me that it's like I'm actually, I need to look at this. And some of that might be tough stuff to look at. So when I work with people, I, I make sure that they're not ashamed of actually claiming what their story is and sitting with it and finding some gold in it. And like some like, oh my goodness, that's incredible because we all have them. I have sat in rooms of so many, so many women who each one will come up and tell their story of what they've lived thus far. Most of them are quite young. And the stories are jaw-dropping, wild. I, I just had like a, a workshop for 40 women who were in a program with me in May. And it was like a shamanic experience just listening to 40 stories and all of these incredible experiences. That in itself, we were all high and awake and alive. Like that whole next week, we, we were like, whoa, that was just magnificent. There was no plant medicine. There was no nothing but just our hearts and our stories. And so whatever belief culturally that, that we've been indoctrinated into that says like that's not good enough or that's not special enough or it's not important, you got to come up with some original idea. I don't believe that. And I think it's a old notion. And I think in the circles, the people that would sit in circles around fires, tell stories, bang drums, like the stories were the currency. Like they're a huge part of how wisdom is transferred to others. So let us not forget that. I've been speaking with Alexandra Roxo. She's the author of the new book, Fuck Like a Goddess. Heal yourself, reclaim your voice, stand in your power. Uh, thank you so much uh, for this conversation and for your powerful stance, powerful voice, and weaving all of these threads together in such a beautiful way. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.